This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, October 23rd, 2020, and I am Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are sitting down with the National Academy of Public Administration ahead of their fall meeting. For those who may not know, NAPA is an independent nonprofit and nonpartisan organization chartered by Congress to assist government leaders in building more effective, efficient, accountable, and transparent organizations. Let us kick off today by welcoming Terry Girton to the show. Terry is president and CEO of NAPA since January 2017. Welcome, Terry, and thanks for being here. Natalia, thanks so much for having us. Also, we have two NAPA fellows joining us today. First, let me welcome Edward DeSev. Ed, hello, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Ed is a leader in NAPA's Agile Government Center and a senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Finally, we have NAPA fellow Chris Mem, who is also a managing director for strategic issues at the Government Accountability Office. Welcome to Fed Talk, Chris. Why, thank you, Natalia. It's my pleasure to be here. As you guys may recall from last year, NAPA joined us upon unveiling their grand challenges in public administration. This year, we are going to check in on that progress and hear how NAPA is turning challenges into changes in the months ahead. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that FedTalk is brought to you by the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program is sponsored by the Office of Personnel Management and insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company under a group long-term care insurance policy and administered by the Long-Term Care Partners, LLC, doing business as FedPoint. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. So once again, thank you all so much for being here. Um, we are such a big fan of NAPA here on Fed Talk, and you know that's why we just keep bringing you guys back. And Terry, I thought we could kick it off with you. You know, like I said, you've been on here before, but Remind us of the great work that NAPA does and why you guys, you know, you know, what got you guys started? What are you doing here for us today? Well, the National Academy is just a little over 50 years old. Um, and when it was founded, um, it, its principal founder was James Webb, who was then the director of NASA. And he said, I know where to go for scientific advice. I go to the National Academies of Science but where do I go to help me run this new organization who can help me with public administration? So he worked to pull together um, some folks who were experts in public administration and created the Academy. Um, and then it was chartered in 1984. And for the, for the duration of the time, what we've been able to do is bring together our fellows who are genuine experts um, at all levels of government in public administration who bring their expertise to government organizations, again, at all levels, federal, state, and local. Um, and they re we really focus on problem solving. So it's an exciting place to be if you like to get your, you know, your hands dirty under the hood of public administration. You know, it's so interesting that you give that history because it immediately, for me, makes me think, you know, 50 years ago was the time when we were really, our government focused on creating a civil service that was, you know, professional and based in expertise. And there was, there was clearly a need for thought leadership. And, you know, exactly what you said, NAPA became that space for thought leaders to come together and promote the excellence and professionalism of our government. And as you just touched on, one of the principal ways you do that is through your academy fellows. 
Um, and I know that, you know, 2020, you just welcomed a new class of Academy Fellows. Tell us a little bit about that program and the 2020 class. Sure. Uh, November is always a really exciting time because we get to welcome our new cohort of fellows. We're bringing in 45 new fellows of the Academy this year. And when you think about fellows of the Academy, they're not like student fellows or interns. These are folks who are nominated and elected into membership based on long careers and extraordinary accomplishments in a variety of different facets of public administration. And it's also really interesting, I think, that about a third of our fellows are professional um, academics. So they've spent their lives researching and teaching in the space of public administration. Many of the deans of the large schools of public administration are fellows. So uh, the Academy's group of fellows, now almost 950, allows us to do something that's really unique in the public sector, which is integrate policy and process across all the different levels of government. So how does federal policy affect state policy and how does that affect local policy and include in it the very most current academic research and thought. Um, so we're really unique in that way. And this group of fellows is really terrific. We are excited to welcome them. Um, one of the things we focused on in our nomination criteria this year was looking for fellows who would bring expertise across our grand challenges. And you mentioned civil service um, and public service. We've had a long history of expertise there. But when you look at the grand challenges, some of them are similar to that. We have modernize and reinvigorate the public service, but we also have some niche uh, grand challenges in there like safe and secure water systems, right? Um, or making government AI ready. And they're things that people don't necessarily naturally associate as a public administration space, but public administration sits right at the center of that. And so as we um, look at our class, I'm really excited. We're enriching our expertise in technology and AI, in climate change and environment, in city management, in international relationships, in public health, which we've seen is a huge public administration issue, workforce development, also a public administration issue, which is going to have huge impacts you know, in the coming months, and then a new strong cohort of academics. So it's really a unique group, and we're really excited to welcome them. Well, and it's really reflective of the reality that I think more and more Americans um, are, are coming to terms with, which is that government impacts almost every area of people's lives. And while, you know, clean water might not seem like a traditional place in most people's, you know, at the top of people's brain, but it's a critical issue that you need a very specific expertise to be able to dive into. And, and like you said, one of the things the class of fellows is great at is bringing together those great minds. And it's, and it's interesting because now you have over 900 fellows um, in, you know, your nearly 50 years. And so what I'm curious about is how you integrate all of these fellows and, you know, from one year to the next, you continue this tradition that has lasted for so long. Right. It is. I think our oldest fellow right now is 95. Um, and our youngest fellow is just in their late 30s, but really um, a dynamic leader. So Caitlin Bloom is our director of fellows engagement, and I really should give her a shout out because she manages this process. Um, but we have each fellow uh, kind of build a profile that tells us what they're interested in, what their expertise is, um, where they're located, how active they want to be, um, because we realize that different stages of life enable different levels of activity. Um, and so whenever we have um, a, a project that we're doing for a government client or whenever we have groups of fellows that are getting together around um, specific topics, we use that to do um, deliberate outreach, to look for volunteers, um, to make sure that whenever we get engaged in um, a project that we've got a very diverse, representative, well-rounded group of experts who are bringing all of their knowledge to the table. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about this very well-rounded, diverse group of experts. And 
We are lucky enough to have two of those fellows with us here today. Ed, who has been a fellow since 1991, and Chris, who was part of the 1997 class. And I know we are just up against our first break right now, but when we come back in, I really wanna hear from Ed and Chris about what their experience has been like as Napa fellows and you know how they have seen the process grow and change over time. So we're going to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. When we come back, we will dive more into our conversation with Napa. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are here with Terry Gurin, Ed DeSev, and Chris Mim discussing Napa's grand challenges and Academy Fellows. Uh, before we kicked off for our break, Terry was telling us a little bit about the Fellow Program. And as I mentioned, we are lucky enough to have two Fellows with us today. So, um, Ed, I will start with you. You've been a Fellow since 1991. What has that looked like for you, and what do you think the biggest benefits are for the Academy Fellows? Let me uh, give you an anecdote first, if I may. Um, One of Terry's predecessors asked us to decide whether we were a Hall of Fame or an all-star team. And I think under Terry's leadership, we've really shown that we're an all-star team, that we can take on a series of challenges and integrate those challenges in a way that provide real results for people in government as well as the general public. Uh, I'm excited at the Agile Government Center to be one of the enablers of the grand challenges. We want to use Agile to be able to execute various elements of the grand challenges. So I think the fellows program now is, I shouldn't say this, but thanks to Terry. She's done a terrific job. Not that her predecessors weren't good, but she's brought a new energy to this whole thing. Um, that's really been exciting to be part of. So um, with that kudo, I'll pass it on to Chris. Thank you. For, for me, the, the Academy began, uh, my interaction began a number of years before I was nominated to become a fellow. And that I was a, what they called an associate member of the Executive Organization and Management Panel, Standing Panel. And that, that is just one of the, the panels we have in the Academy. And I was able to attend their, their monthly meetings. And basically, I had an opportunity to interact in small group settings with some of the heroes of public management who I had read about in graduate school just a few years before. And it was like, wow, not only is this person still really, really active and on their game, but they're incredibly generous with their time and was then willing to talk to a young GAOer and talk to them about what they did and what their experiences were and their history. Um, and sadly, many of them are, are no longer with us, but you know, one of my great heroes, all of our heroes, Dwight Inc. still is. And he, you know, and he was one of the very first and, and among the top of that list. And those were the people that were instrumental also then in, in their willingness to nominate me to, to become an Academy Fellow. I've had the opportunity since then to be involved in a variety of different ways with the academies, working on standing panels, working on some of the special projects. I was on the the board of directors for for six years. Um, I made the unfortunate uh, choice or volunteered to to be the chairman of the board precisely as the last financial crisis was kicking off. Uh, And so anyway, that that was a whole separate uh, nightmare, but credit to the board for keeping us together during a very difficult time, you know, when the... uh, when the business model was really under attack. Um, so I, it's just been a, a delight. And I, I think what, what Terry was saying in the, in the first segment is, is absolutely correct. It's the, it's the opportunity to, to interact and take work from the best of the academic world, federal practitioners and state and local practitioners, now increasingly people with an international point of view and really bring to bear on some of our pressing governance and management problems, the best thinking and experience that's out there. That's what's attractive to me, being inside the academy, and I think that's our value proposition to our clients when we're working. 
Yeah, absolutely. I loved so much of what you guys just said, both the idea of being an all-star class that really collaborates and learns and grows from each other over time, and a class that takes on these really big issues in our government and for our entire country. Like this, it's not just, oh, the federal workforce. It's also, you know, our democracy as a whole. And I think that that was evidenced um, in the grand challenges that Napa rolled out you know, at the, at the end of last year. And Terry, I would love for you to, you know, give us just a little bit of an overview of some of the common themes that were in the grand challenges and how Napa came to discover them. I will remind all of our listeners that Terry joined us last year for a deep dive into the grand challenges. And you can catch a link to that show in the description for this one. Well, thanks, Natalia. I'll try to give you just the quick version of this because it's such an interesting process and it was so new to Napa. But in 2018, we actually decided that the Academy should launch um, a a decade-long thought leadership agenda. We just didn't know what that was going to be. So we spent um, six months actually collecting public comment. And we asked people to give us their ideas of what grand challenges were. They had to be big, They had to be um, something that required a long-term commitment and significant innovation. They had to be really challenging. They had to be, uh, they had to require a different way of doing government. So we got hundreds actually of public suggestions. And then we convened a steering group um, of some fellows and some other folks um, leading government at different levels, um, including the, the director of the National Academies of Sciences, Um, to make sure that we could look for trends in all of those different suggestions, but also to make sure that we didn't miss something. Um, And so that steering group was really instrumental in taking the hundreds of public suggestions, kind of compressing and smushing and combining um, to get the the core of the, the focus and adding in some other things. And when we got that final list together, we sat back and said, this is not the list we expected coming into this, but this is the right list. And so we revealed that list last November and we had no idea um, that um, our, our fellows basically had a crystal ball, right? We knew those were big issues, but we had no idea six months later that they were going to really reflect the, the state of international government. So um, I, I'm really proud of the effort, but I think. Um, it's also a great opportunity for us to drive change and help public administrators think differently about what they do. Absolutely. And if you look through the grand challenges, they really do touch so many different aspects of our country. And they reflect a very long-term, you know, missions, you know, regarding technology, privacy, the environment. These are not just they're not short-term issues that can be solved with a flip of a switch. They are things that require a lot of collaboration and research and ideas. And I think the challenge is what they do really well is set a framework for how we can all change our thinking on a vast array of issues um, in order to actually lead to progress and change. And I think one of the things that you just touched on is You know, when you rolled out these grand challenges, man, you didn't know you would have this kind of a 2020. And it's stunning to me how some of these challenges are so, uh, you know, necessary now. And and it really shows uh, uh, kudos to to the the forethought um, that you guys had when you were putting these together, because who could have ever predicted that things like our public health would be such an unbelievably huge priority. And and I'm curious if any of you can speak to what you've learned in the last year and how national and global events have impacted your understanding of the grand challenges. Well, I'll go first and then I'll, I'll let Ed and Chris um, speak, but two things. One, um, when we say, you know, who could have imagined, I think the point is that our fellows actually did imagine this, right? Um, And it's because, as we talked earlier, they're folks that have their finger on the pulse of government, and they knew that these were going to be issues. They might not have known exactly how they were going to manifest. They knew these were important. 
And I think the other thing that we've really seen over this past year is how all 12 of these are so integrated, right? As an example, you know, if you want to build a resilient community, you need local meaningful work. You need a focus on social equity. You need clean water or you don't have a community. You need leaders who engage their neighbors in the business of government. You need a fiscal foundation that's sustainable. So at the end of the day, for me, the umbrella brand challenge is resilient communities. That's what we want. Um, and all of these pieces, if we do them well, build resilient communities, which build a resilient nation. So for me, that's kind of the big lesson that we've seen play out in the current crisis. Let me let me go next. Uh, Terry just used one of my favorite words, uh, resilient. Um, if you haven't read the book, I'm looking at the book right now, The Resilience Dividend by Judith Roden. Buy it, go out and get it, because Judith has a series of characteristics that talk about how communities, places like Medellin, Colombia, uh, which was one of the core areas for drug trafficking down there, were able to turn things around by thinking differently. And one of the things that's exciting about the work that I'm doing at the Agile Government Center is we're able to work internationally with people like the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Terry is going to be doing a piece on November 18th for OECD. And part of our focus there is how do you come out of the COVID pandemic? How do you take the lessons learned from the grand challenges, put those together in a resilient way using agile principles as well as resilient? And that cross cut of the grand challenges of agility, of resilience, is what this is all about. We're really blazing some new trails. And we want to be careful not to seem to be just the flavor of the month because Terry and the, and the board and, and the, uh, the folks in the Grand Challenges set out a 10-year agenda. Now, I'm 75. All I want to do is be able to see the end of that agenda. Chris? Ed will be here for the t the the tenth year anniversary. I don't doubt that at all. That which is which is great. Um, building, I think, on on both Ed and, and Terry's comments, and and you know what's striking to me is Terry was is pointing out is the the interrelationship among the the all of these. I mean, they're they're standalone in the sense of the way they're presented, and in way in many cases the way we're thinking about them. But they're they're not standalone in the sense of how they're being worked within the academy or how how they affect the outside world. Um, and so it's, we, we face a set as a society, as a world of a set of, of overlapping and reinforcing problems. You know, they, they are wicked in both the classical sense of evil, but wicked in the sense of, of just incredibly complex and very difficult to deal with. And I think, I think that's part of the intellectual strength of the grand challenges. It would have been easy for the Academy to, to, to take kind of a defensive crouch and say, let's let's just do the traditional management category. So we'll have one grand challenge on acquisition and one on IT acquisition and one on um, the CFO Act implementation or something. And those are all good issues. I mean, my agency is all over those, you know, but but those aren't the great existential challenges that we face as a people and a society. And I think the grand challenge is really kind of aimed for that. And then second, and this is where, where Ed's um, effort and, 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 you know, I'm really honored that he was kind enough and generous enough to allow me to sit in and learn from some of the things that they're doing, is that given the nature of these challenges, the old ways of doing business and public management aren't fit for purpose for how we're going to address this. We need to be thinking of dramatically different ways of working together. And it's its its, its own grand challenge, right? New approaches to public governance and engagement. Um, but it also requires us to be more agile. It requires us to think of a broader scope of what public management is rather than the four walls of any particular agency, how we work together across sectors and, and levels of government, both domestically and internationally, as, as Ed was pointing out. This is the big challenge that we have you know, in, in terms of governance as to how do we then use these different governance capacities to address all of these other uh, grand challenges. Yeah, I, I think that that was really great. And I think it really hits on uh, something that all of you guys said, which is this is not, um, I think, as um, Ed put it, the flavor of the month. This is a long term strategy for rethinking the way we approach government. And I love the idea of it really being rooted in resilience. 
because I think if there's any lesson we learned from 2020, it's the importance of having resilient communities and having a holistic approach to addressing the needs of every American citizen. And it does, you know, it, it involves a, a, a process that forces you to think globally as well, um, because it is not just the United States. We do have to stop here for our second break, but when we come back, we will return uh, to this conversation. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering our second half of the show, and we are going to be discussing Napa's Agile Government Center. So Ed brought this up a little bit earlier. He talked about the importance of agility when discussing government reforms and really resilience in communities. Um, I think Ed would agree that having an agile government is very necessary for having a resilient government. I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the Agile Government Center. It is a collaboration between NAPA and the IBM Center for the Business of Government. And Ed, um, could you talk a little bit about what that relationship looks like and, and how it comes together in the Agile Government Center? I'd be happy to. I have to take one step back, though. Um, like anything else that's really lasting and good in government, it started with lunch. Uh, Terry and I went out to lunch. I think we, I think it was a Dutch treat. I'm pretty sure. I, I know I did. I know I paid part of it. Um, and we talked about the fact that we were both a little frustrated. This is about a year and a half ago now. A little frustrated that the frameworks that we were looking at in government were not necessarily keeping pace with the way we thought that government should be working. One of the things we both had been thinking about, as had Joe Mitchell, who's one of Terry's key staff members, was the nature of the software development industry where software development was being changed from being a very traditional planning-oriented, slow-moving, slow-delivery kind of vehicle into a more agile way of thinking. And agile really is, um, in agile government, it's a common-sense approach of the agile government principles, which I'll talk about in a minute, managing regulations, policies, and programs. In other words, comprehensively. It's not just about software implementing programs, but all three levels of government, programs, projects, and the whole of government. After I finished lunch with Terry, I talked to Dan Chenner, um, who I'd worked together with in the uh, Clinton administration, who now is the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Dan immediately said, you know, I've been thinking about the same thing. We look at what the private sector is doing. Uh, a fellow named Denning, Stephen Denning, wrote a book called The Age of Agile, in which he talks about the nature of agile implementation throughout many, many different kinds of organizations. And Dan said, you know what? We'd like to work with you. We'd like to work with Napa to create um, something. I don't know what we'll call it. I said, why don't we call it the Agile Government Center? And so we did. The Agile Government Center was created about a year ago um, following a roundtable that IBM hosted at a meeting of the National Academy of Public Administration, the fall meeting last year. And we created um, a, an entity that wanted to do three things. One, look at Agile Government principles. Two, develop a series of case studies. And three, assist governments, and again, this is around the world, in implementing Agile Government. And uh, I think we've done a pretty good job so far. The website 
just below the grand challenges is a little place for you to click on learning more about agile government. And I would recommend people go to the NAPA website, look at the grand challenges, and then click on agile government. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Oh, I think you answered it and then some. Um, that was really great. And that was a really good overview. And I think the history is really important in understanding how this stuff came together because it sheds light on what we were talking about back from the first segment, which is the I, one of the things that Napa initially identified in its creation was the need for thought leadership in this space. Um, and I think one of the unique things about the Agile government center is that it takes uh, this international approach. And, and I think the case studies are, are very interesting. In fact, one of the case studies um, is the World Bank. And I was reading about, you know, in preparation for the show, I was reading about the work that you guys do. And it's interesting because in the case studies, you relate the what you're studying very directly to the principles of agile government. It, it really is you take the principles and you apply them. And I thought it, it would be helpful for you to walk us through how you did that with the World Bank and, you know, highlighting some of the principles along the way. I'd be happy to. I have to put in a plug, though, when we talk about the World Bank case. Um, the Institute for Successful Societies at Princeton University, which is led by Jennifer Widener, was a tremendous help. They create case studies across issues like global health, like global economic development, and have been doing so for, I guess, about 10 years now. Jennifer was nice enough to help us develop a case template and nice enough to help us work with the people at the World Bank. We worked with some of its former leadership and some of its current leadership to look at agile government principles. And I'm going to hit four or five of them and give you a sense of how that worked at the World Bank. World Bank's mission ending global poverty is very clear. Um, and we, when we talk about agile government principles, you have to start with a very clear mission. If there isn't clarity in your mission, if it isn't understood throughout your organization, you'll never be able to move into being more agile. You also have to, as a second principle, have metrics for success. The World Bank program looked at the cycle time. How long did it take them to get a grant through the system to the point of decision to go or no go? How much did it cost? How much did it cost in time and labor to do that kind of thing? What were the results of the decisions that were made? These metrics for success, again, reflect the nature of the mission. They also reflect a focus for the individual aspects of the organization. External networks. The networks that the World Bank works with are incredible. Again, we look at something like the World Health Organization, we look at the International Monetary Fund. All of these organizations working together help the World Bank execute its own mission. When I worked um, in the Obama administration for the president and the vice president, we had to create external networks like these to do our own work. The World Bank actually has embedded them and works incredibly well through networks. Another principle is speed. The metric that was most important to the bank was let's do this better and faster along the way. It doesn't have to be cheaper, but it has to be better and faster. And another principle was we're going to use empowered, highly skilled, diverse, cross-functional teams to innovate. The bank took people off the line, off their, their primary responsibilities, and brought them in as Agile fellows and said, you need to work with the other people in other parts of the organization to get things done. They did this persistently, another Agile principle, over a three-year period. And they're satisfied that things are significantly better than they were. They used the organizational leadership, the people at the very top of the organization, another principle, were able to articulate to people down the organization, if you want to think of it that way, the importance of using evidence-informed solutions, another principle, which the World Bank is very good at. Well, if you take the template of principles and apply it against what the bank calls the agile journey, as you'll see in the case study, you get to the point where you can start to talk to other organizations about the kind of things that they should do 
in order to be more effective. I really like that what you do in these case studies is you really identify where an organization is, is hitting the mark and doing something right. And then, it, like you said, it creates a template for how other organizations can adjust their behavior to also hit these marks. And, and some of the principles that you mention, um, like the evidence-informed solutions, you know, innovation, organizational leaders, I think those are, you know, critical, not just for an agile government, but for addressing some of the grand challenges that NAPA has already introduced. And Terry, I would love for you to come in with a connection between how the Agile Government Center relates to these grand challenges and how these principles matter for that as well. You just heard Ed give a great rundown on the the critical issues that the Agile Government Center is, is addressing. And when we rolled out the grand challenges, we rolled out the Agile Government Center at the same time because... As public administrators, you know, we have our our big ideas here, but we couldn't get away from the core uh, management principles, right? We knew that if you're going to make progress on any grand challenge, you needed to address how do you manage risk and uncertainty? How do you improve service delivery? How do you protect cybersecurity? How do you do things differently and, and with more agility? And so it felt like the very first thing um, that we could do that would spark that kind of creativity was to create this center. So it does stand alone, but it's absolutely fundamental to any progress we're going to make on any of the grand challenges. That's the framework for the future. I love that. I think it's I, I think understanding that they were rolled out at the same time as distinct but also interrelated um, is a really interesting frame of reference for this conversation. And, you know, hearing these principles, hearing how they relate to the grand challenges, I'm curious, Chris, uh, from your work at GAO and what you've seen from agencies and how they have kind of changed over time and grown, how do you think these agile principles relate to what we see in the federal government and some of the problems or successes within federal agencies? Yeah, well, I, I think they, they should relate. I don't think they relate yet, you know, and I and meaning that we're still at the early part at the federal level, at least the agencies that, that I'm most exposed to and kind of learning about them and, and thinking about, you know, how do we apply this? I mean, it has a, you know, the, the notion of agile has a long track record in kind of the IT world. Um, and it's how do they make that transition? And I, I into you know other program areas. I completely agree with what you are focusing, Natalie, on. Of one of the strengths of, of Ed's approach is to identify concrete case studies, very specific kind of lessons or tactical things that people have done there, and then discuss with them transferability to other other situations. And here's how what they did at World Bank can work in your particular challenge with in your particular sets of programs as. As the case studies and the, the literature gets more robust on this, I think you're going to see some some take up on this. I mean, I, because there's at the very broadest level, and I don't want to say that you know that what we're doing is anything like agile government. That's the, the next big step that we have to take. But similar types of thinking are underway when, for example, on addressing high risk areas. And we've had the, the you know the high risk program in the GAO since the early 1990s, and we look at five things to get you off the high risk list. Do you have top leadership attention, which is a version of do you have mission clarity? Um, do you have the capacity in order to, to, to get off? You know, that is, do you, do you have the, the resources and the people and the talent? Are they, is there a dedicated team that can address your high risk issue? Do you have an, an action plan in place? That is, do you have an evidence-based approach to how you're going to uh, tackle this very difficult issue? Do you, um, what sort of monitoring is going on? And that is to make real-time changes, which begins to, you know, tease up to the, the act. The, the agile line is that you know that do, do you have milestones? Are you making real time adjustments? Are you you know changing as you need to change going on? And then finally, fifth, do you have demonstrable results? So again, I don't want to imply that they're fused yet. We have more to learn from the agile approach, but I think at least the beginnings of a vocabulary there are, are in place that, that we can look to adopt some of that in, in kind of other pro federal program efforts. 
Thank you. I think that was a, a really interesting connection to how it works in federal agencies, because I think most feds would agree that although there is some foundation for that, um, it, it hasn't really been developed, um, especially outside of the technology sphere, because I, I definitely agree with what you mentioned about how technology has always been linked to agility. But one of the things I think the Agile Government Center is doing well is breaking out of that only tech is innovative mold Absolutely. and encouraging that in other areas of government as well. Uh, and I think that that's critical, you know, for the success and modernization of our government. I also really like that you brought up the high risk list, because I think similar to how Ed discusses how, you know, you, you see the organizations that are meeting the mark and it creates a template for other organizations. I think a, uh, you know, a, a way that the high risk list can be beneficial is paying attention to who gets off the high risk list and what they did right in order to meet their objectives um, and improve their agency and you know get it off of that list. Um, so I think it's interesting how we work to create these templates so that we can better understand what makes an organization succeed and what prevents or creates obstacles to success. And I'm excited to continue this conversation into the fourth segment where we're really going to discuss the forward look um, and, and, you know, kind of the fall meeting that we have on the horizon and putting some of these uh, leadership and, and thought leadership objectives into the election 2020 project. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show, and we are going to be looking ahead to election 2020 and the Napa fall meeting. And I want to start with the 2020 project, uh, the election 2020 project, which Napa rolled out. Uh, Terry, can you tell us a little bit about this project and what's being done? Absolutely. You know, the Academy has been really active in every election cycle, using its fellows to publish papers and, and thought pieces. So for us this year, the timing just was perfect to, to look at the grand challenges and the election, which was a year out from when we announced and say, how do we take this agenda and insert it into the conversation? Um, and so what we decided to do was um, take the position of imagine if you were the person who was going to pick up that grand challenge portfolio in the next administration, whether reelected or newly elected, the first day you walked in, if you picked up this paper, what would you need to know? And so what we did was we gathered our fellows um, around the grand challenges. And as we talked about earlier, you know, we've got great expertise there and said, this is the question. What do, what does the next administration need to know to move the needle in their first year? Because or the first year of, this, uh, of the reelected administration, because we know there's some delay between when Congress is fully up to speed and when administrations are fully staffed, even a reelected administration goes through transition. Um, and so we wanted to focus on a, a short list of important things that the, 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 the leaders in the next administration could take immediate action on. So what we've got, we have 12 grand challenges, but we've actually got 14 papers because a couple of them have two. Um, over 60 recommendations that are administrative in nature um, that can be taken up right away. Um, and I think there are some cross-cutting themes. Every paper was developed independently, but as we pulled them all back together at the end, we saw some very common um, ideas. One is organize early for success. Um, one, especially based on several months of racial justice issues, is Put a social equity lens on everything that you do and make sure that across whatever policy domain it is, you're thinking about the equity impacts. The third is the, the nation's going to have a massive recovery on its hands from COVID and economic um, dislocation. So think about all of those recovery plans and leverage them to move action in the grand challenges. Because as we talked about resiliency earlier, they all fit together. 
Um, the third is to use existing process, or fourth, use existing processes like cross-agency priority goals to track progress. Don't create a new thing. Use that already. Um, you really have to think interagency and intergovernmental to make progress. And then the last one is keep Congress informed and work with Congress. Um, we don't think there's much here that requires legislative changes, but all of it will be different. And when it's different, Congress needs to know. So we're really excited about kind of this handbook of practical things that folks could pick up and do in January that would make progress on all of the 12 grand challenges. That was a really great overview. Thank you, Terry. And it really hits on the interconnected and collaborative nature of not just the grand challenges, but however, you know, whatever the next administration is, when they are introduced or reintroduced to all of these issues and reframing their agenda, it's going to be an important time to understand how, you know, it's like you said, you're not reinventing the wheel. You need to look at the agencies, look at the cross-agency priorities and make sure that you're starting the new administration with an understanding of how these things fit together, um, an understanding of the underlying principles that need to be addressed, you know, social equity concerns, you know, I think being a very top of mind one for many Americans, um, and, and then really using those principles of resiliency um, through and through. Ed, I'd be curious for you to jump in and provide some perspective on Election 2020 projects. Well, I've been uh, recommending books all day, so I'll go to one of my absolute favorite authors, Michael Lewis. Uh, I won't recommend Moneyball. I won't recommend Liar's Poker. I won't recommend The Blind Side, although I loved all of them. Um, I recommend The Fifth Risk. He wrote a book that looked at the transition, the last transition, and looked at what happened during the last transition and asked people, what are the greatest risks, people who were in government, primarily, um, it's not true, uh, both political appointees as well as uh, career civil servants. And what he came down with was the idea of program implementation was the fifth risk. And he focused on that and talked about and how to get out of that risk, how to manage that risk properly. Um, I've been through two and a half transitions. I was halfway through Hillary Clinton's transition uh, as head of the the, uh, the the group that Napa had when uh, Hillary didn't quite make it. Um, when I say that, I'm, I the, if you read Michael Lewis's book, you'll also see the nature of the transition that occurred in um, the Trump presidency. I won't comment on that. I am a uh, lifelong Democrat, so I don't want to be commenting on, on another administration. But both the uh, Clinton transition as well as the Obama transition were nicely handed off from a prior administration, both Bush administrations in this case, to a new administration. That comedy, that ability, not comedy, comedy, um, the ability to work together with folks is tremendously important. And the ability to hit the ground running. I think that um, that what I what I see of the current transitions, there certainly is that ability. So speed, comity, and managing implementation risks are really, 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 really important. And um, I, I hope that that whoever the next administration is, whether it's an extension of the current or a new administration, they, they do those things as well as they possibly can. Oh, yeah, I think it's important to remember that, you know, whether it is a new president or the same president, there is a transition um, and there is, you know, things that need to be considered and ways that we need to think about uh, changes in government. And I think that, you know, is a good reminder that a new president is not the only change uh, that comes with an election. There are many uh, Senate and obviously the House of Representatives. There are a lot of changes that will likely be underway. And Chris, I would love for you to jump in and provide some perspective, uh, maybe outside just the traditional presidential transition lens. Yeah, well, we have, we GAO have responsibilities under the Presidential Transition Act to be prepared to brief any incoming transition team. And we've done that every time that there's been a change. And obviously, 
should there be one this time, we would be prepared to, to do that as well. But equally important, Natalie, as you're pointing out, is in a sense, the congressional transition. We're going into the 117th Congress. And so um, we know just by nature of you know, the dynamics of the Congress that there will be you know, new chairpersons, new ranking members on a number of the committees. And this isn't even if the Senate should flip or not. It's just, you know, people just kind of move around. Some people will, you know, may not win re-election. Some people will and be able to move up in the kind of the, the, the pecking order as it, as it were. Um, and all the issues that we're talking about, the GAO high risk list, the grand challenges, these are all, as we've been discussing, longstanding issues. They're not going to go away and they're not single solution issues. There's not something that that in the case of, you know, I work for Congress, so I'm an Article One kind of person. They're not something you can legislate your way out of, that it's going to take, in many cases, legislation, a lot of cases, you know, oversight, questioning, follow up, you know, to see what's going on and, and to make sure that uh, implementation is actually being carried through. Um, that's something that we're working, that we would be prepared to work with the new Congress on to help them identify what are some of the big pressing management challenges that they're facing and public policy challenges, what's the body of work that we have that can help inform some of their decision making on that, and how do they make sure, as Ed was pointing out, you know, that in agreeing with him about how great Michael Lewis's book is, um, to make sure that implementation is, is actually carried through and that we, we address these. Because in, on a lot of management issues, as difficult as they are, the thing that really breaks them down is just a, a just not be able to get them as they were over the over the goal line, you know, and just the, the failure of, of the breakdowns and implementation. If there's a presidential transition, that risk is even greater, you know, that, uh, that you kind of throw out everything the previous group has done and then rebaseline to zero. Um, we need to make sure that we keep momentum on what's what we where we need to keep momentum, um, and then where we need to augment it, we go ahead and augment it. Absolutely. And I think that forward looking lens um, is, is a great transition into what I just want to end on, um, which is the fall meeting. Uh, Terry, if you could just in our last minute or so of the show, give us, uh, you know, what people can expect and remind people that they can still register. Um, and it will be in the description of the show. People can check out that link. Thanks, Natalia. I'm delighted to invite your whole audience to join us. It is open to the public and people can register at napawash.org. Our theme for this year is resilient communities and the role of public administrators. We're going to be focusing on our election 2020 uh, projects. We have several live panels. And if I can just take a minute to highlight who our plenary speakers are, because I'm so excited. Our Elmer Stats Lecture. Fostering Social Equity Through Public Administration is going to be delivered by fellow Naomi Barry Perez, who's the director of the Civil Rights Center at the U.S. Department of Labor. On Monday, our plenary is Public Service, Private Resilience, Pandemics Are Personal, given by Dr. Ann Shukit, who's the principal deputy director at CDC. Then on Tuesday, we're going to um, wrap it up with our web lecture, The Challenge of Public Health Administration in a Pandemic. Crisis, Response, and Integrity with Joshua Sharfstein, who's the also a fellow and the Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at Johns Hopkins. So we've got a powerhouse lineup, really dynamic live sessions and pre-recorded on-demand sessions. Um, we'd love to have folks sign up and join us. Absolutely. I cannot speak highly enough of the fall meeting. I know I am excited for this year. And if the things in this show, in this, this quick hour, uh, give, give you any indication of the incredible work that NAP is doing, uh, make sure you check out the fall meeting because it is a deep dive in, into these things that we were only able to brush the surface of today. Um, I, I want to thank Terry, Ed, and Chris for joining me today. This was a really great conversation. And thank everyone at home for listening to Fed Talk. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw Bransford and Roth. Have a great weekend. <laughs>